Matthew chapter number 15 this morning. And I want to preach to you on one of the most unusual miracles that our Lord ever performed. It's unusual for a lot of reasons. He cast a devil out of uh, the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. Now, it's not unusual because he cast a devil out, because he cast lots of devils out. But it's unusual because of a few things about this woman and her circumstance. I gain great encouragement from this passage because I see myself uh, in a lot of the same situation that this woman was in. Matthew chapter number 15 this morning. Let's begin reading in verse number 21. The Word of God says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast, and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very Hour. Let's look at verse 27 once more. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this Bible. Thank you for the Spirit of God. Lord, I pray this morning that you would accomplish your will and your desire in our hearts. If there's any amongst us lost and undone, let them see in this woman a picture of themselves. Let them see in your Son that great sufficiency, that great salvation that only He can give. Father, I pray, Lord, that any that are here and saved but have a great need, Lord, or even a small need, I pray that they would see in you that their need can be met. Father, we love you this morning. We don't love you like we ought to, and we don't love you like you deserve. But we do love you, Lord, because you first loved us. Now, please teach us and show us to love you more. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I've always been fascinated by this passage of Scripture. I'm fascinated because of the condition of this woman, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. I'm fascinated because of the response of the Savior. Now, I'll be honest, Jesus doesn't respond how we'd expect Him to respond, and there's a clear biblical reason for that. But mostly I've always been fascinated by the statement that the Lord makes in verse 26 when He says it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And this woman responds in an unusual way. She said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. That elicits this response from the Lord. O woman, great is thy faith. I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning on the thought crumbs from the king's table. Now, as I look at this passage, I'm struck by a few unique things about it. By way of introduction, I want to give you a few of these unique things and why this miracle is so unusual versus all the other miracles 
in the New Testament. It's not that unusual that he casts a devil out of somebody because the Lord did that quite often. In fact, it seems sometimes when you read in the Gospels that you can't turn two pages without finding that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord even over and above the devils themselves. And uh, it's not unusual through the Gospels to see Him commanding through His deity and His authority uh, the ability to cast a demon out, not with great incantations, uh, not with pomp and circumstance, not with some sort of spooky ceremony and holy water, but merely with the all-powerful Word of the Savior uh, to command these demons to leave people, and they obey. You say, why did they do that, preacher? Because He's God. He's God. And they know He's God. There may be some that claim they don't know He's God, but the devils know He's God. James said that the devils believe and tremble, and certainly they do all through the New Testament. But this is unusual because of a few designations about this woman. I want to say, first off, this miracle was unique because it was a singular miracle. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean by a singular miracle? Well, a handful of times in the New Testament we find that Jesus went to a place just to deal with an individual. In fact, look what it says in verse 21. It says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast. Now look down at verse 29. He's just got through dealing with her. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the sea of Galilee. I think this is unusual because Jesus went into Tyre and Sidon just for this woman. Let me say it was a great truth and a great day in my life when I came to realize that though He died for the whole world, if I had been the only one, He would have still died just for me. What a beautiful truth. Aren't you glad it doesn't say that Jesus died for a thousand people or Jesus died for ten thousand or even ten million. And we're not there yet in this world as far as a current population, but even ten billion. No doubt we've had many more than that over the course of human history. But I'm glad the Bible says that uh, that whosoever believeth in Him, that He loved the whole world. He didn't just love a little group of people that think they're elect. He didn't just love people that He thought had potential. He didn't just love people that would fall in line with a certain denomination. But He loved each and every person ever born into this world. The Bible says that He tasted death for every man. And I'm thankful He tasted death for me. So it's unique because he goes there and deals just with this woman. But then I think it's unique because she was the first of only two Gentiles in the earthly ministry of Christ that it is recorded for us in Scripture that he did a miracle for. Now, that's not to say they were the only two Gentiles that he did a miracle for, but it's the only two that the Bible shines the light of Scripture upon and shares with us. Now, that's significant because of the phrase that he uses in verse 24. He says, I am not sent, but under the lost sheep of the house of Israel. No doubt that was a discouraging thing for her to hear. No doubt she thought to herself, well, Jesus isn't here for me. He must be here for somebody else. But wait a minute, she evidently believed that his heart must have beat for her because she persisted. I'm thankful. Listen, if I was a Jew, it may not mean that much to me. But I'm not a Jew, amen? I don't even know what I am, amen? But I know as a Gentile that he loves Gentiles too. 
And it's great encouragement to me to know that God loves me regardless of my ethnicity or my social background. He loved me just how He found me, just how I was. I didn't have to be a part of any special group. He loved me even though I was an alien from the covenants of God, even though I was estranged from that covenant relationship that God had with Abraham, even though there was no earthly reason to believe that God would ever pay attention to a ten-year-old boy like I was, He still loved me and found me and saved me by His grace. What a blessing that is, to know that He loves us. But then it's unusual for this reason, because not only was she out there by herself, and He came to where she was at, not only was she a Gentile, so there's no reason to believe that He should have been dealing with her, but she was actually part of an accursed race. The Bible says in Matthew's account that she was a woman of Canaan, and that she was. Mark's a little more specific. In that day, they weren't called Canaanites. Uh, they were called Syrophoenicians. And this woman, Mark tells us, was a Greek, a Syrophoenician. But in Matthew's account, we have an important truth brought to light in the calling of this woman a Canaanite. She was part of that race whom God had promised to extinguish, that race whom God had promised to drive out of the promised land. In fact, if uh, the children of Israel had been obedient to the Lord in entirety, very likely this woman wouldn't have been here on this day. Listen to what it says in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 21. It's giving a prophecy concerning the end times and concerning the time during the millennial kingdom. And it says this, And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. She was part of a dying breed, part of a, an accursed and soon-to-be-extinguished race. You say, wait a minute, preacher, why is that encouraging? Because I'm in that same condition. As a lost sinner, I was part of a dying breed. I know sometimes we look at this world and think to ourselves, oh, but sinners have the upper hand. The worldlings, they have the upper hand. The world's getting worse and worse and worse. Oh, I know it's getting worse and worse. But you read the back of the book, my friend. This world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever as a sinner born a sinner. I didn't become a sinner. I was born a sinner. And as a sinner, I had for my payment the wages of Sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. There was a death warrant written above the head of a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ten-year-old boy that had never seemingly done a thing to hurt anyone. But because of who he was, because of what he was, he deserved to die and go to the same hell that every other sinner deserves to die and go to hell. He was lost and undone. I was part of a cursed race. Not because I was so bad, but because that's who and what I was. I was a sinner by nature, and yet Christ found me where I was at. So this is a unique situation, and as such, it's dealt with in a unique way. But the commendation that's given, and we could preach a message about the statements of the Lord. We'll touch on it, but that's not what we're going to preach on. We could look at what the Lord said and examine it in detail. Certainly the Lord behaved in a manner that we wouldn't think very uh, normal for Him to behave. It's because it wasn't a very normal situation. But the thing that He commended was this woman's faith. By the way, there's another time that He commends a person's faith, and that person also is a Gentile. When the centurion's servant is healed, He says, the Bible says He marveled at His faith, and He said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. 
You know, the only way to get in is by faith. That's the only way. It marvel at his wealth. Everybody standing around did that with the centurion. They said Jesus ought to do something for him because he's an important person and he built a synagogue for us. The Lord didn't pay any attention to his money. The Lord didn't pay any attention to his authority. The Lord didn't pay any attention to his popularity. All the Lord saw was a sinner that was willing to put his faith in the Savior. And so he did a work in his life. And so the Lord commends this woman's faith. Well, what was so great about it? I'm going to go ahead and tell you how I'm going to do this. I have three points this morning, okay? Are you with me? I have three points. The first two we're going to preach real fast. And the last one we're going to take our time on. I say that because if I don't, we'll get down pretty close to the third point and you'll think, oh good, we're going to get out of here real soon. I don't want to burst your bubble. So I just am going to let you know we're going to preach the first two real quick. And then we're going to park on that third point for a few minutes. I want you to notice that her faith was great, first off, because of what she believed about her situation. You know that the first step to a sinner coming to the Lord is that he has to recognize the situation he's in. Part of the reason that so many people reject Christ is because they don't think they need Christ. It's not necessarily that they believe something wrong about the Savior. Many of them believe He's the Son of God, believe He died for them. I talk to them all the time. You can get out and knock on doors and you'll find people that say, Oh yeah, He's the Son of God. Oh yeah, He died for my sins. But they've never accepted Him, not because they believe something wrong about the Savior, but because they believe something wrong about their situation. If you don't believe you're a sinner, you don't believe you need a Savior. You may believe you need a debt consultant. You may believe you need a relationship counselor. You may believe that you need a therapist. But until you believe you're a sinner, you'll never look for a Savior. But she believes some things about her situation, some things that I think were right. I want you to notice first off, look at verse 22. The Bible says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David." My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Now, she didn't come and say, have mercy on my daughter. Notice when it goes down in verse number 25, she says, Lord, help me. She didn't say, Lord, help my daughter. She didn't say uh, that uh, my daughter has a problem and she needs that problem solved. I want you to notice, first off, that she believed her situation was distinct to herself. She believed that it was her problem. And therefore, she had to deal with it. Let me say that one of the first things a sinner has to recognize is that your sin problem is just that. It's your problem. Not your parents' problem. Not your church's problem. Not your family's problem. It's your problem. It's not because somebody was mean to you. It's not because somebody gave you a whipping that you probably deserved that and ten more on top of it. It's not because somebody didn't hug you enough. It's not because somebody didn't give you a pony when you was growing up. The reality is that we are lost because we are sinners. We are miserable because we are lost. And we'll never get out of that misery until we meet the Savior can't be legislated away. It can't be uh, prescribed away. It can't be counseled away. The sin problem is just that. It is a sin problem. It is a sin condition. It is an individual matter. Nobody can get saved for you. Nobody can get saved in your stead. Somebody already died in your stead. Nobody can get saved in your stead. You have to make the decision because it's your problem, not somebody else's. 
You know, a lot of people, their approach and their attitude to this sin problem is, well, one of these days I'll get to heaven and I'll figure it out. Oh, have you got it wrong. The truth of the matter is, if it don't get figured out down here, you'll never get to heaven. And you don't even have to get figured out. It's already been figured out. You're lost in your sins, but Christ died for your sins. And through His death, you can have life. The Lord said, come let us reason together. What do you reason based off of? You reason based upon the finished work of Christ. I have no right to be before you, Lord. I have no excuse for who and what I am. I have no justification that I might stand before you. But one has died in my place, and based upon his death, it's reasonable that you'd save me. It's your problem, and only your problem. Notice number two, not only was it a distinct thing, but notice it was a demonic thing. She says, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. She didn't say <laughs> that she's got ADD. Don't, don't throw a rock at me. I'm not saying everybody's got ADDs, but I don't. But she didn't say she's got an attention problem. She didn't say my daughter has got some emotional issues. She didn't say my daughter is in a bad situation. She said my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. She recognized this was not only her problem, but it was a spiritual problem. I'm not saying that folks don't have problems outside of spiritual problems. But I will say this. Most people that think they've only got unspiritual problems have some spiritual problems. And if you're lost without Christ, whatever other problems you may have, the biggest problem you have is a spiritual problem. She recognized that it was demonic oppression in the life of her daughter. And she said, that's what needs to be fixed. She didn't go to a healer because you couldn't heal it. She didn't, uh, she didn't go to some witch doctor because a witch doctor couldn't have helped her. She didn't go to some author and uh, best-selling book writer. She went to Jesus because only Jesus can fix a spiritual problem. And until you recognize that it's a spiritual problem, you won't get it fixed. You've got to realize that my problem is on a spiritual plane. And therefore, only the Lord can solve it. She recognized that it was demonic. Notice a third thing. She recognized that it was desperate. Look at verse 22 again. It says she came out of the same coast and cried unto him. Look at verse 23. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. She cried. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 25. Then came she and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. Let me just put it this way. If it was you or me, and we finally made up our mind we was going to come to the Lord and, and we was going to get saved, and we came to the Lord and we said, Help me! And He ignored us. And then the disciples, let's, let's put it this way. I'm not saying disciples are preachers, but, but let's pretend the preacher said, Just get out of here. There's no hope and help for you. And then the Lord expressly spoke to you and said, Hey, I'm not sent for you. I'm sent for somebody else. It wouldn't take long before we'd turn around and leave. Unless we knew that leaving meant an eternity in hell. She was desperate. She wasn't going to be turned away. You know, listen, I I believe we ought to give invitations. We give an invitation in time we preach. And I do understand that we're to give an answer for the faith that lies within us. I'm aware of that. And I understand that there's things you can do atmospherically that are conducive to people making a response and obeying the Lord. I'm aware of that. But sometimes I worry about all this begging that we do with people. 
to try to drag them down an altar and get them saved. Let me tell you something. If you don't realize you're in so bad enough shape that you get up and walk 20 feet to get saved, chances are you're not serious. Not yet. The Spirit of God may grip you. Your life may fall to pieces. You may get serious. But the truth of the matter is, if I can't get you down an altar, then the Lord, or if the Lord can't get you down an altar, then I can't get you down to an altar. She was desperate. In fact, she was so desperate that when she had been turned away, she said, I- I've still got to keep coming back. She believed her situation was dire. She knew that there was no other answer. There was no other way. She had to get an answer. And I want you to notice a second thing. We see what she believed about her situation. But look at verse 27. I want you to notice what she believes about herself. That's the next thing. A sinner has to realize he's in a dire situation. But then he's got to believe some things about himself. Notice verse Let's start at verse 26. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now, let me paint the picture for you. Can I do that? The Lord is painting the picture of an oriental household in which the children would be sit around the table and would be eating. And the little dogs, that word dogs is a diminutive word. He's not speaking about the dogs that roamed the plains and the wild dogs, but he's speaking about a house dog. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've got them. They yap and yap and yap and yap. Friend, you do what you want, but if I had choice between one of them dogs and a goldfish, I'd take a goldfish. I want a dog big enough that if I get in a mess, I can ride him out. Amen? But that's what I'm talking about, one of these yapping dogs. And they would sit at the feet of the children. And when the children would eat the bread, the crumbs would fall down and the dogs would eat those crumbs. But the Lord says, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get me to take the bread out of the mouth of the children and throw it to dogs. I've never read how to win friends and influence people. I'll confess that to you. It don't sit on my bookshelf. But I'm betting this would violate some of the rules. Not a very pleasant thing that he says to her. He basically says the children of Israel are children and the bread's given to them and you're nothing but a dog and you don't deserve it. In most Baptist churches today, you'd hear the double doors swinging about two seconds after that as somebody walked out. But notice what she does. What did she believe about herself? I want you to notice first off that she believed she was unworthy. She says this, Truth, Lord. Truth, Lord. She says, Lord, you're right about that. I don't deserve the bread that's for the children. Lord, you're right. I am unworthy of your grace and of your goodness. You know, I've never met a sinner that truly got saved, but what when they came to the Lord, they knew they didn't deserve it. I knew that when I was lost. And when I got saved, I didn't doubt that He'd save me. I knew He'd save me based upon the finished work of Christ. But I knew there's no reason in and of myself He should save me. Let, let me just draw... I'm, I'm going to shiver your timbers. Are you ready? You don't deserve salvation. That's why it's by grace. There's nothing you can do to deserve salvation. That's why it's by grace. In fact, the Bible says that it's either of grace or it's of works. can't be a mixture of the two. It said, if, if it be of works, then it is no more grace. And if it be of grace, then it is no more of works. And this woman said, yeah, Lord, 
You're right. I am unworthy. I am unworthy. I'm not worthy of the crumbs that fall. I'm not worthy of the bread that the children eat. You're right, Lord. There's no reason I should be here. You're right, Lord. You could turn me away and I couldn't be angry because I'm unworthy of your goodness. Notice the second thing. She acknowledged she was unrighteous. That word dog, and you'll find it all through Scripture. You'll find that when Mephibosheth came before David, he said, such a dead dog as I. You'll find that whenever David stood before Goliath, that Goliath said, you've sent out a dog to fight against me. And all through the Bible, that term dog is a derogatory term reflecting particularly Gentiles. Particularly Gentiles. They called them one of two things. They either called them dogs or they called them pigs. And both of those were considered derogatory terms. It spoke of someone that was unrighteous, someone that was filthy, someone that was undeserving. And she says, yet the dogs. When she said, yet the dogs, she she was saying, yet me. Yet me. I don't know about you, ladies. I don't know how the ladies would do with that. Fellas, you'd probably just punch somebody in the nose and then forgive them and love them. But you ladies, I don't know if you'd get over it that quick. Somebody looked at you and said, you're just a dog. Just a dog. Just a filthy, undeserving dog is what you are. That didn't bear no offense to this woman because she knew that she was actually worse than a dog. She was a lost sinner. She was actually worse than a dog. At least a dog's loyal. She knew she was worse. She said, I am unrighteous. I am wicked. I am sinful. In fact, Lord, I'm everything that you say I am. You know, you won't get saved arguing with the Bible. Only when you say, all right, Lord. And you wave that white flag intellectually and spiritually and say, Lord, I am everything you say I am. Why do you think, why do you think the cross is such a reproach to people? You know that the cross is not... We always are so worried about winning the down and outs. You know it's the up and ins that get so offended about the cross of Christ. The thing that's offensive about the cross of Christ is not the the compassion of the cross, it's the condemnation of the cross. It's not the fact that God loves us that upsets the sinner. It's the fact that the sinner needs to be loved that upsets him. The fact that he's a sinner in need of salvation. How dare you say such a thing? How dare you imply that I'm unrighteous? How dare you imply that I'm in need of anything, even from God Almighty? This woman said, you're right, Lord. I'm nothing but an unrighteous, filthy dog. I agree with your assessment. Then notice, thirdly, she acknowledges that she was unable to take care of herself. She says, truth, Lord, that's true. But the dogs depend on the crumbs that they get from the master's table. Those little dogs would die without the crumbs that they get. If they weren't fed from the table scraps, they'd have nothing at all. I mean, you know where we're at, right? We're in the Bible, amen? I mean, you didn't go down to Sam's and get you a bag of old Roy. If they didn't eat the table scraps, there was nothing for them to eat. And she says, you're right, Lord. But I need you, and I can't live without you. Oh, what a beautiful cry from a lost sinner. 
Oh, what a beautiful cry from a lost sinner. Lord, I'm unworthy. And Lord, I'm unrighteous. And there's no reason you should save me. But I'll die without you. And so you're my only hope. Oh, that's where I was at. Was that where you were at? That's where I was at. I wasn't a bad kid. But I was a lost kid. And you don't have to be a bad kid to be a lost kid. I was lost and undone. When I, listen, when I got saved, you know why I got saved? People don't normally talk about why they got They talk about that they did get. I got saved because I knew I was going to die and go to hell. And listen, now you've got a bunch of, of theologians, self-named anyways. You've got a bunch of dry fellows that have never preached a Holy Ghost-filled message in their entire life that'll tell you it's unscriptural to get saved because you're afraid of hell. I'll tell you this, it was a big factor with me. It was a big factor. I I don't know that I can go back and compartmentalize everything that went through that little ten-year-old boy's head, but i tell you one thing I remember vividly. I don't remember thinking my parents will be pleased. I may have thought that, but I don't remember that. I don't remember thinking, oh, life will be so much better. I may have thought that. I don't know. I don't remember thinking, he loves me so much that I ought to get saved because he loves me. And I may have thought that. I don't know. But I remember vividly, my friend, like it was five minutes ago, sitting there in my bedroom and thinking, if I died, I'd die and go to hell. And I don't want to die and go to hell. And I know He'll save me. I'm scared of dying and going to hell. And He saved me. And friend, I'll argue with you. If there's anything I'm good at, it's arguing. I'm good at it, man. I've had, I mean, listen, I've had to gauge my... I mean, I've had to try to temper myself. Because, I, I mean, I'm not quarrelsome, but I'm good at it. I could argue with anybody. People say, you'd argue with a fence post. Yeah, and I'd win. That's how good I am. And I'd argue with you, friend, until the day that the trumpet blows. That when I, when I got saved, I got saved because I was scared of dying and going to hell. And the Lord still saved me. He still saved me. So this woman believes she's unable. And she can't do it. But then I want you to notice, thirdly, we see what she believed about her situation. And we see what she believed about herself. But I want you to notice what she believed about her Savior. Here's the real key to unlocking the oddities of this narrative in Scripture. Notice verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. I want you to notice that first off, she saw him as the blessed leader of the kingdom of Israel and of the world. She knew well the promises that God had made to his forefather David. In fact, the Bible says there was a special friendship that had developed between Hiram, the king of Tyre, and David. And all of their days, up until many, many generations had passed, the nations of Tyre and of uh, Israel were very, very close. They had very good relations. No doubt she remembered how, or had heard the stories, 
of how that David, God, had prospered him, how he had conquered, how he had took Jerusalem, how he had expanded the borders. No doubt she knew the stories of how during the golden age, in the reign of Solomon, the kingdom grew to its greatest borders and to its greatest prosperity and wealth. No doubt she knew how that God had promised that a son of David would one day sit again upon the throne of Israel. And when she sees him, having heard of him, that's what the book of Mark says, she heard of him. She heard what he had done. She heard that he had come. They had been waiting in 400 years of darkness. They had sat with no open vision, with no open revelation. God had been silent. Heaven had been closed. And now John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness, girded in, uh, in, in camel skins and preaching with hellfire and damnation and says that I go to make straight the way of the Lord. I go to prepare the way. There's one that cometh after me, the latching of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. No doubt she had heard of this same Jesus that was doing all the miracles that, that the Pharisees were trembling in their hypocrisy and religious nature in front of. No doubt she had heard of Him. And she said, surely this is the Son of David. I see that because of a few things. Notice she, first off, she believed in His approachability because she came to Him. She came to Him. She believed she could come to Jesus. She believed even though He was the Son of David, even though He was the soon-to-be-crowned Messiah, at least in her mind He would have been, she still believed she could approach unto Him. Boy, that's, that's a wonderful king that you can approach to, isn't it? Isn't it a beautiful thing that the King of all glory, we can come boldly into His throne room? But then not only that, she believed in His authority. She called Him the Son of David. She believed He had the authority, not just over Israel and over the world, but over all of creation. She believed He had the authority and He had the right. Not only that, we see she believed in His ability because she knew that Jesus could help her. She knew that Jesus could help her. And yet, what do we find? We find that wasn't enough. She says, have mercy on me. Lord, thou son of David. And the Lord just turns and with stoic and chilling silence ignores the cry of this lost Gentile. Why did he do that? Because she had no claim on him by that title. She was a Gentile. He wasn't her king. She had no claim upon him. You know, there's a lot of this kingdom theology floating around. I don't know if that's what it's called, but that's what I call it. All this talk about the kingdom. People writing books about a kingdom life and living in the kingdom and all these things. And mass people, masses of people are running to this kingdom theology, this constant talking about the kingdom of heaven. Can I tell you something? Everybody, everybody that is under the authority of God in some way. Everybody that God has the, the divine right to rule over, in a sense, is a part of the kingdom of God. But you're not a part of the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. The kingdom of heaven has a literal throne and a literal king. And there's a lot of people buying into this kingdom talk, and I worry that they're not part of the kingdom. Not because of who they are as a person, not because of their social or economic or, or ethnic status, but because they've never been born again. You've got to, except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be born again to be a part of that kingdom. 
She owned him as king, but she wasn't a part of the kingdom. We don't see a lot of this today because we all have a problem with authority. So we don't find very many people owning him as Lord, but not owning him as Savior. But in this context, that's what she was doing at this point. She was appealing to him as a political leader and saying, please have mercy on me. And he met her with silence. She saw him as a blessed leader, but I want you to notice, secondly, that she saw him as a benevolent Lord. In verse, uh, let's see here, verse number 25, what happens? He says, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of Israel, of the house of Israel. In other words, he's saying, you're not part of Israel, so you're none of my concern. It says, then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She doesn't call him the son of David this time. She calls him only by that title, Lord, and she recognized him as a benevolent Lord. That's evident by her persistence. You remember the story that's given, the parable that Christ gave of the neighbor coming and requesting uh, something from his neighbor and knocking on the door and that the neighbor wouldn't come to the door, but the neighbor just persisted in knocking and persisted in knocking and persisted in knocking. And so finally, just out of frustration, the, the neighbor gets out of bed and comes and answers the door and meets the needs of that person. And that's given sort of as a parable uh, for us for prayer, being consistent and persistent in prayer. And I believe in that. I believe we ought to pray without ceasing. I believe we ought to be persistent in our prayer lives. And I believe God responds to our persistency. But she was persistent, but that didn't get it done. She was persistent. Notice her position. She worshipped Him. She laid herself, that word literally means she laid prostrate upon her face before Him. She said, Lord, help me. And she laid down on her face, no doubt with sobs and weeping. She said, Lord, help me as my Lord, as my Creator. Please help me. Notice her pleading. She says, help, help. But that didn't get the job done, did it? Because he says, it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it before dogs. But then something changes. The first statement she makes, she sees him as a blessed leader, and he does not respond. The next statement, she sees him as a benevolent Lord, as the authority of all creation, and as one that cares. But he does not respond by answering. He says, it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, truth, Lord... Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Something within that statement was a key that unlocked something. Because it says in verse 28, Then Jesus answered her and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. What was it that was so unique about her statement? Well, we've talked about what she believes about who the children are. The children are the nation of Israel. We understand who the master is, the one giving the bread. He must be God, no doubt. And we know what she believes about who the dog is, because she is the Gentile dog. And it's in the person of the dog that she's pleading for grace and help. First she sees him as a blessed leader, and then or as a as a blessed leader, and then as a benevolent Lord. But here in this statement. She sees him as the bread of life. And then and only then can she get the help that she needs. You see, she sees him 
as the bread that must be broken. She sees in Him every need being met. Well, let's just talk about it. I want you to notice, first off, she sees Him as scorned. As the bread of life, the crumbs are discarded. That's what's left over. That's what's cast aside. Can I say that the Bible teaches us that He came unto His own. His own received Him not. She said, that's true, Lord, that the, that the bread belongs to the children. But what if the children don't want it? Then could a poor pitiful dog like me get a crumb or two? Well, what happened? Oh, the table was spread for the nation of Israel. For three and a half years, he worked miracles, he wrought righteousness, he spoke truth. And then at the end of that time, they said, we have no king but Caesar. Children brushed him off the table and said, well, I have nothing to do with him. (laughs) Aren't you glad that dog was sitting under the table and said, they may not want him, but he's just what I need. He's just what I need. Oh, let me tell you something. There may be some that want to laugh at him. There may be some that want to scorn him and reject him and cast him away. There may be some that want to sit and snicker and make fun and ignore the wooing of the Spirit of God. But here's one old boy that's glad that God passed by his day one day. Oh, I'm thankful that God came by my room on December 1st, 1997. There may be some that aren't interested. There may be some that brush him off the table like yesterday's crumbs. But let a, let a mangy, filthy, little man minuscule dog just lap up a crumb or two and it'll be enough oh it'll be enough they believed he'd be scorned but they believed he'd be sacrificed you don't get crumbs unless the bread's broken they want it wasn't angel food cake as bread it was a loaf you didn't get crumbs unless the bread was broken let me tell you something. A sinner never gets saved till they see that Jesus died and He died for them. <laughs> she said, I believe you'll be rejected, but I believe you'll be crucified, and I believe your body will be broken. This morning in Sunday school, we taught on the Lord's Supper. We're dealing with it tonight, and it was a good opportunity to. And tonight, we'll gather in those little pieces of unleavened bread... And those little cups of grape juice. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just feel like I wish God would give a more, uh, um, uh, an example of greater magnitude. You know? Sometimes as I look at that little cup, I, I think to myself, Oh, Lord, don't you deserve something grander than this to represent your death? But isn't that just like the Lord? To not take the highest seed, at least not in His earthly ministry, but in humility and meekness. Let me tell you something. If we, if we pass it out in golden cups, I might not feel worthy to drink of it. But in those little piddly, minuscule plastic cups, man, it's just the right size for a little dog like me. It's just the right size for a little dog like me. And I believe that His blood was shed. And I believe that His body was broken. And I believe you don't get crumbs unless you break the bread. But then notice, and I'm done, she recognized his sufficiency. Just a crumb will be enough. 
Just a crumb, Lord. Just a crumb would be enough. I don't need the whole loaf. Just a crumb. You know, part of my problem. You know, part of my problem with Calvinism. They think they deserve the whole loaf. <laughs> it doesn't take the whole loaf. It just takes a crumb. One drop of His blood would be enough. I don't have to have it all. If I can just get a crumb, that'll meet my needs. That's enough. She knew that if she could just get a crumb, she wouldn't go away hungry. And let me say to you this morning, if you're lost without Christ, all you need is a crumb. If you'll bow the knee to the blessed Son of God and see Him as the broken bread of life, sufficient for your needs, call upon Him as your Savior, ask forgiveness, turn from who you are and what you're depending on, and look to the Lord Jesus Christ to meet your needs you'll find it'll be exceeding abundantly above all that you could ever ask or think. You know what happens later on in this chapter, or maybe it's in Mark's account? Well, they feed the 4,000. They had already fed the 5,000. And you remember, they were worried that it wouldn't be enough. And the little boy walked away with 12 baskets full. He's enough this morning. He's enough. Oh, he couldn't be enough for a sinner like me, preacher. You don't know what I've done. Well, don't talk about yourself like you're some dog, right? It's what you are. But a crumb is enough to save a dog like me or a dog like you. He's sufficient this morning. He's enough this morning. He can save you this morning. He can cleanse you this morning. He can wash you this morning. He's sufficient. He's enough. He was sufficient 2,000 years ago. He's still sufficient today. If you'll just call upon His blessed name.